0: Hello and welcome to a very special Locked On Women's Basketball podcast. I'm your host, Howard McDowell, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at both Locked On WBB and, of course, over at High Post Hoops, which is your only source for 24-7 women's basketball coverage, college, pro, high school, and international. Make sure you're following at High Post Hoops as well. And my guest today needs no introduction, but I will give her one anyway, and it is kathy engelbert who is the commissioner of the wnba and kathy thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us
1: great to be here today howard
0: please i'd love to start is pretty early on and it's what is your first basketball memory
1: oh so you know obviously as a kid you know growing up in a family with um eight eight seven siblings eight of us all together um really just you know my father having played a high-level college basketball for St. Joe's under Jack Ramsey. Uh, So my highest, you know, my vivid memories are, you know, we had a basketball hoop in the backyard, my brother spray-painting a foul line every spring and out there all hours of the day and night playing with my three older brothers. I was always drafted as a fourth and a (laughs) two-on-two attorney out in our backyard. So those are my earliest memories of basketball.
0: Something that I I love about your story and something that really resonates, I think, with me and with a lot of people is just that, just how steeped you are in basketball tradition. Uh, What's interesting to me about it as well, though, is when you were growing up, the pathway to what a woman could hope to be in basketball and look to achieve in basketball was more limited in that way, in part because it was before the existence of the WNBA. So when you thought about it, because you know you downplay it, but obviously your skill level was significant. And as a five foot ten point guard who went on to play D1, you did quite a bit in this game all the same. What did you view as sort of your maxing out with basketball? Where did you think basketball could take you?
1: Yeah, I think as I observed, you know, even my father was drafted by the Detroit Pistons in 1957, you know, because the money wasn't in the NBA back then, chose to go into the corporate world and worked for RCA for 30 years. And so I I think I kind of looked at, you know, okay, I need to establish myself in the business environment. When I got to Lehigh and I played for Muffet McGraw, and yes, Howard, you're right, there was no WNBA. not that I ever thought I could play professionally back then, um, but I actually did play in a league, uh, an accountant and lawyer league in Philadelphia back then, right after graduating. And after three years, as as I started to get really busy with work and my skills on basketball started to decline, I realized, okay, I I need to have a, a career here that I'm going to build, um, and ultimately did and stayed, you know, for over three decades at Deloitte. So. Um, so a- again, I think it was, you know, there weren't the opportunities as you said. However, because I was a beneficiary of Title IX, uh, ultimately, you know, because I, you know, was in high school in the 70s and early 80s, mm-hmm. and then college in the in the mid mid 80s, you know, I had a great experience, and I, I truly do believe, looking back now, and I said this when I became the CEO of Deloitte, and certainly here as the commissioner, that having those formative years playing basketball, and in my case, also lacrosse. Really built uh, my my confidence, my leadership skills, and I do, and I know I've been quoted around this, but I'm a strong believer in you know sports builds confidence in girls and boys, and particularly girls. And as I have seen and developed and mentored women over the course of my career, you know sports has been an important part. But even if you're not in sports, whether it's the arts, whether it's other types of hobbies that people have. You know, I, I try to use sports as as my path, but try to make sure others know that there's a broader path out there. So um, so and basketball, quite frankly, provided me the early years of leadership uh, and certainly playing under Muffet um, helped that. And I was captain of the senior team and we were 24 and four. So having success and seeing a coach turn around the team has taught me a lot of lessons as well.
0: It's hard to say you're anything other than executive material based on your basketball career alone. Like you said, to be a team captain, to be playing point guard, I guess I wonder, and I don't mean to put you on the spot on this, but when you have a player comp in today's game, who would you say your game, whether it's on the court or off the court or some combination, most closely resembles of the players who are in the league now?
1: Um, Yeah, I guess, um, you know, I I was at the Liberty game the other day against Seattle Storm, and Whitcomb is, you know, was kind of running the show and running Mm -hmm. the offense. And my sister was with me who watched me play over the years, and she and I played together in high school. And she said, you know, she's like you. She's directing the offense. She's seeing, you know, the blind pass. She doesn't get credit probably for it. And so, you know, I say all the point guards who are, you know, what I call dish and dealing the ball and and don't get a lot of credit because they're not the high point scorers. But, and again, we didn't have a three-point shot when I played, but I admire these women and how pure the game is around their shooting skills from the three-point line as well. So I, I'd say, you know, it's those that are running the show, running the offense, because that's, that's essentially what I did.
0: Now, Sammy Wickram's an, ex, an excellent comp. Uh, I like that quite a bit. So for the lead and your awareness of it, I'm wondering... What was your first WNBA game? What do you, What do you remember about it? And when did you first experience it?
1: Yeah, well, certainly in the early years, I followed the Liberty, having you know lived up here in the New York area um, since 1992. Uh, so just early memories of the Liberty and and those you know iconic players back then. And so I mean, just because of where I lived and you know having grown up in Philly and having no team in Philly, obviously usually I don't root for the New York team, (laughs) but in this case, you know, the Liberty was the team I followed the most earlier in in the the WNBA's history. And obviously now, you know, over the last couple of years, I've just been following the Mystics and the Storm. And, you know, a lot lot of the other teams followed the story around San Antonio moving to uh, Las Vegas. Obviously the Sparks were always, you know, on television, I recall. And obviously, you know, because it's LA because of some of the iconic players that have played for the Sparks over the years. So, You know, again, I I know now not not to have a favorite team, but, you know, I just really enjoy the pureness of the game and the sport and, um, you know, really think there's a lot of momentum around the W right now.
0: As a fellow South Jersey product, I can appreciate the inherent conflict between Philly and New York, so I (laughs) understand that difficulty. But I'm glad you mentioned it because it brings us to a larger question, which is, the overall business and footprint of the league, and I feel like there's a lot of uh, recency bias in that conversation, how it's done generally, where people talk about the attendance as it looks now, the lead's uh, television profile as it looks now. And so you know from Following the Liberty that attendance actually was north of 10,000 as a league. Uh, per game in both 97 and 98. And the Liberty actually peaked, they continued to grow and they were up to 15,600 people and change per game by 2001. And so when you think of where the lead can go and the lead ceiling, let's say, do you think of it more as the first few years as a possibility in addition to just growing step-by-step, you know, sort of year-over-year, Uh, compared to where the numbers are here in 2018,
1: 2019? Yeah, I think, Howard, if you look at, you know, sports and sports being a business and, you know, building out sales and marketing capability, and I've been talking about kind of the three pillars I'm focused on, the the fan experience, the player experience, and the economics. Um, You know, we need to broaden our revenue models, whether that's through corporate sponsorships attracting a more, you know, broader fan base. Uh, I do think you know we need to work on that sales and marketing capability, and I think what is going to be helpful is, um, and I said this in in Las Vegas at the All-Star, uh game, you know, is broadening the conversation around the W, around women's sports, around women's leadership year round rather than just in season. And I, you've been obviously very helpful in in writing about the W, and you know we have such passionate fans, we have passionate and competitive players um the game you know i think the product on the court is excellent and so i think there's certain things we can do to drive more fans in the seats but broaden the revenue model more broadly than that too so um you know i'm early in my tenure here howard but you know really working hard on assessing listening um you know I'm about to embark on a tour of the rest of the markets that i haven't been to yet and really listen both you know all the whole ecosystem players owners GMs, fans by the way I hear a lot from fans Um, that's the fun part (laughs) of the job Uh, and so you know I know there's so much passion around this league this sport Um, you know we just came off the junior NBA world championships where I don't know if you saw but the girls won the skills competition and you know it was interesting if you watch the video the boys were ahead until it came to the last three-point shot and because the girl was a pure shooter i'll say um she ended up catching up and making the shot to win the skills competition there's so much momentum around the sport and women in the sport um that i think we can drive you know whether it's back to the heyday you remember um or really just looking forward over the next three four or five years um Around how we can build this lead and grow grow this lead to a sustainable and driving business model is, is what I'm looking forward to, to executing.
0: I mean, to be fair, when you've got WNBA ambassador Brianna Stewart on hand to be able to help coach the coach the drills, it's uh, almost an unfair <laughs> advantage to have the ringer. But it's true; it was it was terrific to see. I I do love that event. Uh, so I, I'm interested in in sort of unpacking one of the things that you were talking about, which is. With all the buy-in from players, from fans, from everyone else, it recalls what's happened over the last couple of years, which is that the lead, which has had a different level at different times of embracing of its own activism, became much more significantly involved in that. I mean, whether it's uh, the take a seat, take a stand uh, program, which involved uh, providing money to some nonprofits. Uh, as a portion of ticket sales uh, for the WNBA side, there's been an embracing of it uh, that in some ways reflects where the league is and the players are, and in some way reflects, I think, you know, the where we are uh, at this moment in time as a country, uh, where there's no safe space, there's no even space uh, where people cannot uh, take a stand one way or the other. I guess I, I wonder because... There's two different ways of looking at that from a business perspective. Uh, you know, are you ruling people out? Are you getting more people more fully activated uh, as a result of it? I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about it, about the WNBA's position relative to the activism of our time.
1: Yeah, I think actually that's another uh, area that I think our players have been leaders on. I mean, they're, Mm -hmm. as I've, you know, listened to them and and watched them, you know, very kind of socially conscious, community-minded. So it's not just the social activism, but it's also the community involvement. And um, I think that, you know, it really, with our new reset and the new brand, the WNBA, I think has positioned itself as a Voice in the communities and in, you know, whatever we call it, activists. And, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, again, ev- every game I've been to has some theme that is tied to, you know, a social issue. Um, the Liberty of the other Day was around prison reform. Mm-hmm. I w- when I was at the Mystic Game, it was around the opioid crisis. Um, going to Atlanta, it'll be around women of inspiration. Mm-hmm. So every market, again, I think the WNBA has a unique. Um, space here that they've already been ahead of probably other sports around expressing and embracing, as you said, embracing activism. So uh, I think it's a great part of what these women have to, women athletes, elite women athletes have to offer. Uh, and I think, you know, that that continue to be, I, I think, helpful in telling the players' stories because each of them has a passion for. Um, something whether it's a charitable cause, whether it's a community cause, whether it's a social cause. So I th- actually, I think probably one of the more interesting parts of the job for me is listening to them and what their passions are.
0: And there's also a freedom there, right? Be- because if the lead is taking a, either a neutral position or uh, an antithetical position, as has sometimes happened with other professional sports leads, that makes it that much harder to get player buy-in on the things that the lead is looking to do long term, right?
1: Yeah, I I think that we. I mean, I've got a lot of experience. Come from an organization where we had 100,000 people, 75% millennial, and Hmm. you know, we saw the rise of activism there. So I actually welcome it. It's part of my comfort zone to deal with this. And and I again, I think I've been so impressed again with the socially conscious, community-minded aspect of our players. And again, there's 144 players. They all come from different backgrounds. It's probably the most diverse league in sports. And really kind of enjoying hearing their stories and hearing their passions for what's important to them. And I I actually applaud it. And, you know, we, you know, I I love hearing, you know, from, you know, what they want to be activists about.
0: And of course, you've gotten very positive reviews uh, immediately from multiple members of the executive committee, whether it's uh, Neko Dwumake or Elena Deladon, and that uh, directly relates to, of course, the ongoing CBA talks and uh, there was a public statement released about the progress that's being made. But in general, just people I'm talking to around the game, I think have never been so optimistic about a big picture buy-in from players and league alike. And so I'd love for you to tell me where you see the deal with USA Basketball, uh, the buy-in from players to stick around, to be here year-round and you know, uh, uh, almost a dozen of the biggest names in the league. What does that say about where the lead and the players are on the ability to find a true, like you said, 12-month solution uh, to being able to bring attention to the lead even during the off season?
1: Yeah, it's really important to take advantage of this moment we have around these players, so all WNBA players who will be playing for the U.S. Olympic uh, Women's National Team, um, if you look back, six consecutive gold medals, their record during that time was 101. This is a dynasty, yeah. and they're going for their seventh gold medal, and to, to capitalize on that momentum that we have both in the W and then going into next year's Olympics, where as you know, we'll actually take a month off of the league to support our players over in Tokyo. So. I mean, you know, I'm glad to, to hear the positive reviews and the optimism. Um, it, it really is important that, you know, we get the CBA done. It's important that we support these players year round. Um, it's important, quite frankly, for the sport, for women and girls and confidence and all that. So I, I feel really good. And one of the things i found interesting being new kind of to the CBA negotiations is we all have the same goals so in many negotiations i've been in in my career you know each side doesn't necessarily have the same goals here we all want to drive of the league expand the fan base drive these players to more recognition year-round drive the coolness factor so this is actually a good time to be you know in negotiations as well as to drive you know these players especially for profile the The eight and ultimately the twelve who play for the national team, you know, because they're all WNBA players. They're all elite athletes. and the the success of this women's team and the success of our league depends on, again, I think, you know this big picture of women and women in sports, which you saw obviously with the us you know women's national team in soccer and and they play once every four years. We play every year. Um, you know and I think it's important to capitalize on that and so that's why I'm so excited about the USA basketball and WNBA um, you know kind of collaborating on making sure that you know we're, we're going to win that gold medal as well as um, you know have a platform for these players to train in, in the W's offseason you know to ultimately compete at the highest level in Tokyo so very excited about that.
0: I remember having a conversation with a longtime WNBA executive after I covered the 2015 parade, uh, where she asked me, you know, why, why is it that there hasn't been a parade for the basketball equivalent? I mean, you laid out the numbers in, in such a way that the dominance is overwhelming. Do you see as a potential outcome something like that, a parade uh, that indicates that there is a national movement Around USA Basketball's women's team, the way there was uh, around the soccer team again this summer.
1: Yeah, so I would certainly love that, um, and you know we're working kind of on a platform that you know the W offers around diversity, inclusion, and women's leadership and whatnot, and I think this would play well. That narrative will play well with this Olympic, this U.S. women's national team, and. You know, as you say, the dominance is overwhelming, and I, I think, you know, from a marketing perspective, you know, that's part of our plan is to market up into and including um, the W players in on the U.S. women's national team. So we'd love that parade. So anything uh, any anything you can do to help that, Howard, we're, we're happy to listen. But, yeah, the, the marketing of this in general in the lead-up to the Olympics I think will be important both for the major networks, the broader media, as well as the W itself so we're we're looking forward to taking advantage of that momentum and we'll be working hard in the off season to ensure i think with some of the exhibitions that the u.s um u.s women's national team will play and Mm -hmm. some of the colleges will you know we'll market that up and make sure that that gets broad exposure for the dynasty that's been out there for you know over almost you know 25 years now winning six you know, consecutive gold medal. Oh, just
0: it's just amazing. Well, I, I, I will be there to cover for sure. But you, you spoke about something there that I think is really worthwhile, which is that there is a less and less of a question at every turn in uh, formerly skeptical areas about women in leadership. And you yourself have been a part of that charge, obviously. But we've seen a big change over the last year, year and a half when it comes to women in NBA coaching. And that that has become a pathway now that is quite common, up to and including players in your own league with Pisty Tolliver coaching for the Wizards in the offseason. And does that pathway, and does the fact that there are clearly those job opportunities, uh, the women who were able to do it have always been there. You and I both know Muffet could have coached in the NBA anytime she wanted. It was just a question of opportunity. But now that that is there, does that become an easier part of solving the 12-month, uh, puzzle when it comes to opportunities for WNBA players.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I am actually really pleased with how um, women are are showing up in these coaching roles in the NBA. Um, I, I actually think it's great to add that diversity into the men's game. Mm-hmm. I think it's great to add diversity into our game. Um, you know, one of the reasons I took this job, Howard, was to look at you know how I could have an impact on women while they're playing then also post their career so I'll be very focused on you know how we're developing these women to be future leaders because I'm such a strong advocate for women in leadership and especially women who have played sports and these women are playing it at the highest level and elite Um, and so yeah absolutely these job opportunities more broadly whether it's in the league or other places not as you said some will end up, you know, coaching in our league or in the NBA or in other sports leagues. Others will coach at the high school level. I coached at the middle school level. Um, and others will, you know, hopefully hone their skills, their leadership skills, and take that on the business world. So I think we provide a really good platform and training ground for these women leaders. And, and that's one thing I, you know, certainly am interested in helping these women in, you know, when they get to the point that they want to retire from their WNBA career that we're helping them post, post their career. So that's kind of, again, something I prided myself on kind of paying it forward for um, women's leadership development. And that's something I certainly want to do here at W.
0: And I'm curious from your personal experience, you would break these barriers. I am sure you would hear comments from people and then there would be, I would imagine, uh, normalcy. That sets in. How much of this and how much of the WNBA existing and having these players become now leaders uh, and you're seeing it even in the front office players who are veterans of the league as we are here you know 23 years into the history of this league so we're now into in, in a lot of ways the second generation experiencing this as players. How much of this comes back to for women in leadership just society at large seeing it?
1: Yeah, I think, again, that's why I think the momentum around the players this league is so important right now because the conversation in society broadly, not just sports, is around, you know, gender equality mm-hmm. and is around, you know, why can't women do everything the men do and why aren't women in the networks men are in. And, again, having spent 33 years so 10 more years than the W has been around in um, in business. I mean, I, I kind of see it very clearly that the W is at an inflection point, um, that we can actually take advantage of this momentum, given we're the only women's professional sports league that's lasted over two decades, as you say, in our 23rd year, second generation of players. Uh, and we really, and because these players, as we talked about earlier, have such a strong social voice, we're really fit well into, I think, the future of women, women's leadership, and quite frankly, broadly in society. So it, it is such a great, you know, you kind of, in your question, kind of explained exactly why it's, the W so important at this moment, um, and I, I really think, again, because of its sustainability as, as a league and, and because of the, the elite players and the 144 uh, unique stories that we can capitalize on this and really drive leadership more broadly than just basketball.
0: Yeah, no question. It, it is a larger question for a larger moment. A couple of specifics before I let you go. No, I will not uh, put you on the record about pork roll versus Taylor Ham, you know, the uh, New Jersey question for all time. We got Mick Jagger in trouble last week talking about it. So we'll stay, we'll stay away from that uh, controversy. Uh, I'm curious, having seen the markets uh, somewhat so far, and just within the larger reality that there are 144 players right now in this league, but there are many more than 144 players who are capable of playing at the professional level. Obviously you need to have the right ownership groups in place in order to do it. But in your big picture vision of this league, what do you think, at whatever the indefinite time frame is for it, is the right size for what the WNBA should be in terms of number of teams?
1: Well, what I'll say, Howard, is we need to get our 12 existing franchises um, from a sales and marketing, from a um, growth, from a revenue base, a fan base, in the right place to thrive and sustain this week, you know, for the next 23 years. So that's first. Um, you know, would we look at expansion with, as you say, the right ownership groups? We, we'd certainly look at it, but mm-hmm. I am focused in, especially in this, You know first year or so on making sure that we're driving these 12 franchises and the lead to a thriving sustainable business model and once we do that i think you know we'll start you know we'll start listening to expansion opportunities um i do look as a big basketball fan around the country at, at cities that don't have teams and and so it's certainly something that is of interest um but you know it's a down the road item as you said um and once we get this you know, where we want it with our 12 franchises and and they're as successful as they can be, you know, we'll move on and look at expansion.
0: And obviously putting a team in Philly would resolve uh, the inner conflict that you (laughs) once had for the next generation of Philadelphia women's basketball fans, for sure. Well,
1: as you know, Philadelphia is a great basketball town, but there's uh, plenty others in this country that I think, you know, would be great WNBA uh, franchise uh, cities that support basketball in a big way. So... Um, You know, again, I think we have that opportunity once we, you know, get into kind of our transformation that started with our brand reset and will continue now under my leadership over the next few years.
0: And that transformation takes me to my my final detail, which is that you were at Barclays on Sunday. So you saw and I I know you've been uh, to Westchester County Center and 7,700 plus fans joined you on Sunday in Barclays. It's something that's just not possible in Westchester. There's been... Uh, Certainly no shortage of conversation with people around the league about facilities as well. It was always a stopgap measure. It predates you. It predates current ownership with Joseph Tsai. I'm wondering how confident you are about the New York Liberty being in a place that, as you well know, matters within the five boroughs and ideally at Barclays Center, uh, a world-class facility in 2020.
1: Yeah, obviously, Howard, you know, there's an ownership team, new ownership team, and they're taking a look at um, everything, I think, in the business, including arena. Um, You know, it it was, you know, there's no doubt Barclays, great environment, great fan base. And, you know, you do want to expand, if you're looking to expand the fan base and you have a team in New York City, you know, obviously, you would want to play in a more sizable arena. So, obviously, that's a leadership team. Uh, of the liberties looking at that and quite frankly i'm looking at it as part of my embarking on my tour around the fan experience and quite frankly even the player experience Mm -hmm. um, touches on where they play what the fan base looks like i was down at the mystic game uh, obviously out in las vegas seeing what mgm has done there so i think as i go out on this tour that'll be a big part of what i'm assessing and listening to the teams and the team's ownership groups um, as to how they're thinking uh, about that but you know, one thing I do know is that if you give a fan a great experience and especially a basketball fan in the purest form of the game that these women, elite women play, they're gonna come back. So, you yeah. know, that that should be the focus I think of all the ownership teams as they're looking at, you know, arena and more broadly fan experience. Especially these digital natives are looking, you know, for experience. I brought my daughter to the game who's twenty one. She's part of our target market of a digital native and mm-hmm. um and, and she you know, she can, I necessarily wouldn't necessarily think. So I think the more listening I do, and the more I get a broad set of uh, information to make these assessments. And you might have seen, you know, something exciting. I think is the, you know, the NBA Two K video game now will feature WNBA players. We'll monitor that because that brings in a population of fans that then we can convert to in the seats um, from the video game to the seats. Um, and so I'm excited about that. So. There's, again all this momentum and optimism um you know and,
0: and now we have to go execute on it oh it's huge I have people who are younger than me uh and i therefore trust to be able to tell me tell me that uh being in nba 2k is an enormous thing so i'm very excited <laughs> about it as well well kathy engelbert we won't take up any more of your time cause i know you are busy growing the league and traveling the country for it. But thank you so much for sharing your vision with us and uh, really looking forward to seeing all that you're bringing to the WNBA. Yes,
1: yeah, thank you, Howard. Take care.